It is good to be together, glad that you are here, whether you're joining us online at one of our campuses across the way in the chapel, good to be together. If you're a guest here, my name also is Mark, one of the pastors here, we're glad that you're here. It's been a good weekend for us as leadership. We have caught up with Nancy Moore and her associate Abby as they have debriefed with us the findings of the survey that you faithfully filled out all 93 questions. Thank you, all 674 of you who did that. So a very encouraging word about what God's been doing in our lives as a church and how that sets up for who he has for us next. And so we'll have an executive summary on our transition page. And as we go through this time of transition, what are we remembering? When life brings change, what? Trust the one who doesn't. And this is the time to continue to lean in, take those next steps as together we continue to pursue Christ. So glad that you're here today. So my first trip to Athens, we're going there in the text today, was on the heels of a trip to Israel, my first trip to Israel. And I'll never forget some of the things that happened in Israel, like I caught up with how they drive around downtown Athens. It was like, it was like a motor speedway, like at every traffic light, they were revving up their engines and I'm going, what's happening? What's happening? Nothing was happening. It was just like passionate people. And when that light turned green, everybody floored it. And a block later, they did the whole thing again. I was like, wow, I like this city. And then I went down to La Placa, this great place of shops and restaurants right there on the side of the old Agora marketplace, right at the footsteps of the Acropolis. And I remember walking down the steps into the shop because I wanted to get a new leather briefcase. And I'll never forget the shop owner who was diligently trying to get me to buy the bigger bag. I mean, the book bag, the bag that was so strong, he had to show me. So before I knew what was happening, he called out, Mama! And his 80-year-old mother comes shuffling out of the store. And before I knew what was happening, she had one strap. He had the other strap. And he says, get in. And I stepped in. And they lifted me, the 80-year-old grandma and the shop owner lifted me off the floor. And he said, see, it's strong. You should buy that. I didn't buy that one. But I still have the briefcase I bought. But really, what will always stick in my mind was this. Like, oh, my word the Acropolis, and the Parthenon, right? The temple to Athena, and all of it structured. You can see in the picture here what it might have looked like in Paul's day, in all of its magnificence. But even in our day, as you walk up to the Acropolis, those of you who've been there, right? It's this imposing structure, even in its ruins. And at that point, all of a sudden, something happened where I always thought the Apostle Paul was a stud, but now it's like he's just grown 10 times bigger in my mind and heart as I imagine Paul walking up to the Acropolis, standing on Mars Hill, standing among the Areopagus and proclaiming and heralding the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, it was amazing. So we're on this road trip with Paul, right? And we've been following him around as he's left his sending church of Antioch and he's been with Silas and they picked up Timothy as well. And, and we know it hasn't been an easy trip, right? They hit a dead end in Troas where God calls them into Macedonia, modern day 
Europe. We remember what happens in Philippi when he was wrongly with Silas thrown in prison. He was tortured and beaten. We remember what happened last week in Thessalonica when the Jewish leadership, so jealous about what was going on, they, they, they get a bunch of bad dudes from the marketplace to stir up a riot and they're run out of town. And they go to Berea and the bad guys from Thessalonica, the bullies, find out that he's in Berea and he has to flee again. This time Paul, all by himself, escorted to the sea, he boards a ship and he sails down to Athens where he walks into the city all alone and we catch up with him in Acts chapter 17 verse 16. So grab your Bible. And we're going to notice what he sees, how he responds, reacts, and feels to what he sees, and then what he does about what he sees. Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them, that would be Silas, right, and Timothy. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So were you walking with Paul into the city? What did he see? A city full of what? Idols. They were everywhere. A guy named Petronius, a Roman courtier at the time, says it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Pliny said at this time there were some 30,000 statues. 30,000. They were everywhere. What does this text say about how he felt? It says that he was distressed. So that could mean a lot of things to us, right, as we hear that word, he was distressed. Well, it's, it's stronger than just he felt bad, he was irritated, has the idea of being provoked. It's even the same word that Paul will use in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, when he says, love is not easily angered. Well, what's he provoked and angry about? Well, that the honor of God is not recognized here. It's being trashed here. There are to be no other gods as a Jewish man before him, he knows the first command, he knows the second. You shall not put up an idol that is an image of God. He, he knows these things and he's wrecked about these things, but he does not allow his emotions to move him just into an angry outburst and he doesn't turn into a Jonah figure where he says, 40 more days, Athens, and this thing is going to be overthrown. That was not his job. He was to bring and herald the good news of Jesus, of God's love in Christ and the resurrection. So what did he do? It says that he reasoned, and that's the word, if you looked at it in, in the Greek, it is our word dialogue. He dialogued uh, in places like the synagogue, 
in the marketplace, downtown Athens, where all commerce was taking place every day. Yes, he was in church, but he was also on the streets. He's down at State Street talking, and he was in the lecture hall of lecture halls. He went down to the Areopagus, where he debated, and he also proclaimed. The word is he heralded the good news. And we notice it was the good news about Jesus, and we notice it was about the resurrection. And the resurrection, as you read through the text, pops up three times. It wasn't about Christ and his crucifixion. It was about Christ and his resurrection. So what's the point about the resurrection? Well, twofold. First is, if Jesus resurrected, then he had to have died. So it has something to do with his death. And we realize Luke isn't giving us the entire speech and everything he said. So he's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, which is at the centerpiece of the Christian faith. But he's talking about the resurrection repeatedly because the Greek worldview didn't include that. In the Greek mindset is when you die, it is over. So there is this guy, Aeschylus. He's the father of Greek tragedy. He expresses the sentiment that was still held in Paul's day. It went like this. When the dust has soaked up a man's blood, once he's dead, there is no resurrection. And that truth was foundational for some of these philosophers, like the Epicureans, founded by a guy named Epicurus back in 270 BC. They considered the gods to be far away. They were agnostic, if you will. They weren't sure. But if there were gods, they had nothing to do with our life today. The Epicureans believed that once you die, that's it. So, Make the most of life. They weren't just like unrestrained hedonists, but they were seeking pleasure. And for an Epicurean, the best pleasure would be a simple life. A simple life that was detached from pain and even passion and fear. And then there was the school of philosophy that was the Stoics, founded by a guy named Zeno in 265 BC. They were pantheists. So you know what a pantheist is? Everything is God. And God is in everything. No distinction between the creator God and the created world. And as pantheists, this world was determined by fate. And whatever happened, it was their destiny. And so they desired to live a morally virtuous life, lived in harmony with nature, lived in harmony with reason and their intellect. And so to... Keep going, even if there was pain, to submit to that and live that kind of life in harmony. So there's Paul. He sees idols. He's distressed. And what is he doing? Well, he's reasoning in the synagogue. These people know the scriptures. He's telling this Jesus is the promised Savior of the Old Testament. What's he doing in the marketplace? He is sharing and reasoning about the good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. He's debating with these Stoic philosophers, and they invite him in to the lecture hall there in Athens to tell them more where he proclaims it. So how'd they receive it? Well, some mocked him. They called her a babbler. Uh, Literally, it's, you're a seed picker. And we're going, what does that mean? Well, a seed picker was this metaphor that had to do with things like a gutter sparrow who would just be picking up seeds here and there to feed on. He doesn't have any original ideas. He's just picking up all this different stuff, and he's babbling a bunch of nonsense. They mocked him. Some were confused. 
He's talking about some foreign gods. And we're going, well, that's interesting. Why are they saying plural? Well, it's possible that when he was talking about Jesus, they got, that's one God. And then when he's talking about the resurrection, it's the word anastasis. He, they're going, well, maybe that's this other female. And we got, you know, we got a lot of gods here. And so they were confused. What, what, what's he talking about? And then others were interested. And they invited him to share more. And so notice his strategy in verse 22. Really helpful as we find ourselves living in places like Athens today. Really spiritual, but maybe very ignorant about who God is, who Jesus is, and even who they are themselves. So we pick it up and we find ourselves in verse 22. Chapter 17, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant. It's the word uh, that we get um, agnostic. You, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim. I'm going to herald to you. So, what does he do? He starts. You might say, well, that was totally sarcasm. I see that you're very spiritual, but you don't have a clue. No, I actually think he's, he's trying to win an audience. He compliments. Wow, I see you guys are super religious. Like, you've covered all the bases, and then you got this other unknown God just in case you missed one of them. And so he compliments them, right? And, and he also, though, is finding common ground. He's a religious man, their religious culture. And he grabs onto the unknown God, where he builds a bridge and whets their appetite and says, man, I see that you don't know about this God. I'm here to tell you about this God. And they are all ears. So we get into his message, and his message is found in verse 24. So follow along in verse 24. In fact, when you go up to Mars Hill, this is inscribed in this bronze plaque right up on Mars Hill, his sermon. For any visitor up to the Acropolis, they know about this historical speech recorded for us by Dr. Luke, 1724. The God who made the world, he starts, and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives Everyone, life and breath and everything else, from one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he starts to unpack, who is this unknown God? And he's going to tell him five things about God. The first is that he's the creator. He's the creator of the world and everything in it. So we note that he starts with creation, God's world, not Christ, God's appointed Savior. They don't have the scriptures. He, he's, he's not surprised that they've got all these idols. They don't have the revelation of God and his faithfulness to his people and his desire for us to live in relationship with him, loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he doesn't start with the word, which he did in the synagogue. 
He doesn't have that in common, but he starts with creation and the world, God's world. We all have that. This is where we live. He is creator. Not only that, he is the Lord, the rightful ruler over all things, if you will. He is king. He is the emperor over all of heaven and earth, verse 24. And so, why in the world do you think you could contain the one who created it all as Lord over it all in a temple or shrine? He didn't need anything. He made it all. He owns it all. He's in charge of our history. We're not. It doesn't mean he's responsible for evil in history, but even his plan for all of humanity, now this redemptive rescue plan, cannot be thwarted by evil. If you think about it, the greatest evil ever done is a cross murdering Jesus Christ, the innocent son of God, and the greatest good that's ever been done, accomplishing God's very purposes through that very act. So he's creator, he's Lord and King, but he's, he's very different than the idea of the Epicureans. He said God just maybe started it all up, wound it up like a clock, and then stepped back, and this world is running without God. No, no, no. He is involved in where we've lived, in our history, and he is also the sustainer, not just the giver of life, but the sustainer of our lives today. We live and move and exist because of him. We draw our next breath because of him. Creator, Lord, sustainer. And then, verse 26, he says, he's our father. He created all humanity from one man. What he's saying is, we have a common paternity. And this is a Jewish man speaking to Greeks, and they're all going, no, we don't. We don't come from the same family line. He says, yes, we do. The creator God made us. And he is not just our Lord and King, but he is our father, and he desires a relationship. He's not far off. He is approachable. And he has set this world up that we could live in relationship with him. And so what a grace that idols don't satisfy. I mean, if we didn't understand it, let's just go back to what Pliny said. There were 30,000 statues. Why do you need 30,000? Well, because we're not sure we got all our bases covered. Idols do not satisfy. And that's, that's how God has built this world. There's only one God who can meet our deepest needs. There's only one God who can fulfill all the promises that we hope for to be true in these other idols. And so every worldview, every philosophy that tries to make sense of the world and our part in it falls short at some point, leading us to wondering, I wonder if there's more. So notice where he goes, having just made that point in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so he does a little aside, and he says, now, you guys, you have this unknown God idol to cover your bases, and I've been talking to you about the unknown God, but I just want to remind you, because you don't know God, you don't know yourself. You don't truly understand yourself. You are children of the living God. You bear his image. 
and as a living, moving, breathing human being who bears the image of God, what in the world are you doing worshiping these lifeless, lifeless chunks of gold, silver, and stone? What are you doing thinking that you can, you can control and make a God into your own liking? He elevates them. He gives them dignity so they see themselves for who they are as they rightly understand who God is. Not just creator, not just sustainer, not just Lord, but Father who created us for relationship who's not far off. And so God is creator, creator of all, Lord of all, sustainer of life, Father. And finally, he, he challenges them. And he says, you're, you're forgetting that as children of God, who have been created for a relationship with God. God has created this world and there is order in this world. There's a way we ought to live in this world and we're not aligned with God's heart and living after God's heart. We're not loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The great commandment that summarizes all of God's desires for us. We're not loving our neighbor as ourselves so we're accountable because he's judge. And in the past... God was merciful to the ignorance, not to the sin in the sense of, well, that didn't matter because you didn't know better, but merciful to your ignorance, your, your misunderstanding, your short-sightedness that actually there is a supreme God behind it all, the one creator God. But now, because there's fuller revelation in Christ about who God is, he says, that, that grace period is over. I'm holding you accountable. You, you should know better now. And I'm calling you to turn away from your ignorance. And see, that's what idols do. Here's, in, in my mind, here's the big idea. Idols turn our hearts away from God. And what they do is they leave us thirsty. Man, we want more. This is not, it's not Saturday. I don't know what your idol is, and we all have them, church. The people of God always struggle with idols. And for us to think, well, we don't have any idols. We live in Madison. There aren't any chunks of idols around our city. There's idols everywhere. Because idols are a heart issue. They're a heart issue. And so idols turn our hearts away from God, and they leave us thirsting for more. They leave us hopeless. These people had no hope of life with God after this life. They had, they had no hope of making sense of the pain and suffering of this life other than to endure it or to say it was their fate and destiny. And it leaves us completely unprepared to stand before God. And that's what he's reminding them of. There is a set appointed day and there is a judge, even Jesus Christ, who is this judge, who was raised from the dead, proving that God is God and Jesus is his son who conquered death. So what, what is Paul saying? What's the kernel of the message? You're loved by God. You got all these gods. You, you, don't even, you don't even know who God is. And the God who is, he made you. He's given you breath right now. He's king over everything. And everything you have in your life is from his good hand. And he's your father who loves you and designed this world and you to be in relationship with him. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. But he also said, you're not only loved by this God, but you're accountable to this God. And this is the good news. 
Because if all we know that we're accountable before a holy God who doesn't expect us to be better than the person next to us, but expects us to fully, always love God perfectly with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves, we don't stand a chance to stand before a holy God. But that's the good news. That though we're accountable for having lived a life on our own choosing, making God out of our own making God in his grace and mercy sent Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta repent. It's such a word that we don't catch up with. It's just the word turn. You gotta turn around. These idols have been turning you away from God. You need to turn back to God. See, Jesus turns us back to God. Jesus is the way back to God, he says, the truth and the life. The only way Jesus claimed, right, to the Father is through me. He, he said, you, you need to do that. You need to have a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. You need to change your thinking about God. You need to change your thinking about Jesus Christ. He's more than a teacher. He conquered death. Hello. You need to change how you think about yourself in your own goodness or your own depravity to understand that what Jesus did for you is greater than anything you've done. And your hope in this world is in Jesus Christ. So how do they respond? Verse 32. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Expect that. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Well, that's interesting. At that, Paul left the council, the Areopagus. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. We were thinking, Luke was going to tell us they became followers of Jesus. But remember what Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So they're following Jesus, even as they follow Paul, who is all about following Jesus, and they believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of this intellectual elite group of people that made up the council of the Areopagus. Wow, Dionysius, we're going to meet him in heaven. A member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. You can expect that as you find yourself going off into Madison, Dane County, wherever you live uh, as a follower of Jesus. Some will sneer, some will be curious, and others will hear the good news of Jesus and believe it, believe it. That they're more loved than they ever imagined and, and flawed far more than they ever considered, but God in his grace sent Christ to rescue us. So let's bring it home. Have you responded to the good news of God's love for you in Christ? Or are you still curious? If you are, well, Tuesday nights is the place to go. Explaining Christianity is what we do over a meal, a short video, and then the men and women divide up and they just talk about Questions. Why do we divide the men and women? Because men aren't going to talk about their questions if women are in the room. We're too proud to do that. <laughs> Little note. Not you, I know, but the other guys. So um, that's, a, that's a great thing. Hey, on our, on our website, under resources, you, you can find two ways to live, which is our go-to gospel presentation. The reason I love it is not just because I know the people who, who designed this and wrote it all out years ago from Australia as they were serving in a post-Christian world, but because that's the world we're in, and it starts with creation. It doesn't assume biblical knowledge, and it walks through the storyline of the Bible, two ways to live. 
So have you responded to the good news? And if you answer yes, then the follow-up question is, am I responding? What does that look like? Well, it looks like this ongoing turning away from these idols, and we all have it. Where I keep going to this or to that, and I can start listing the list, and you go, oh yeah, I do that, I do that. And we keep turning back to God. We keep trusting him. We keep taking God at his word. We keep turning. We keep trusting. Is that our ongoing response to the good news of God's love for us in Christ? There's a second question. It has to do with your worldview, your philosophy. Philosophy is wrestling with the big questions of life. How did we get here? Why are we here? And where is it all going? What's your worldview? How do you make sense of this world as you experience all of it? From the craziness of a young mom who ran into our apartment with her baby in the back seat, only to find out someone jumps in the car, steals her car, crashes the car, her baby dies. Does your worldview catch up with that? Can you explain that? It's not like the Bible has easy answers, but it has fundamentally addressed all the big questions of life. How did we get here? What is our purpose for life? And where does it all end? What's your worldview? What idols are you following? Can you make sense of this world? Do you understand your place in this world? Believe the truth that Paul proclaimed. God is not far away. He is near. He made you and loves you and desires a relationship with you. He sent his son to show you his love and to make that relationship possible. The idols leave us thirsty. What did Jesus say? He said to the woman at the well, I've got living water. You drink in my water, you do life with me, you'll never thirst again. The idols leave us hopeless. There's no hope of the resurrection for the people of Athens. Jesus gives us hope. Hope in this life and for the next life. Through his life and death and resurrection from the dead. The idols led the people to be completely unprepared for the eventuality of this appointed day where they would stand before Almighty God and answer for how they've lived their life. And they can't say, I didn't know better. And Jesus gives us a a firm standing. How does he do that? Because when he died on the cross, he took all the junk and stuff of our life that wasn't loving God, that wasn't loving my neighbor, the things that separated me from God, and he took it on himself. So all the guilt and all the things that we've done with eyes open, with just complete ignorance of what we've done, and he bore it on the cross. And as we trust that that good work is what brings us into a relationship with God, we find that the good news isn't just that he took away our debt, but that he deposited into our account his perfect life and righteousness so that when God sees me, because my faith is in Christ, what he's done, he sees Jesus. So, what's your worldview? Have you turned? Just a third question. How do you see the world today? 
I mean, it's really easy to go, well, I don't see idols anywhere, honestly. Come on. That's like ancient world. There's probably some civilizations around. They've got, uh, we know there are. We know there's plenty of idols. But we don't see them in our city. We don't see them in our hearts. What are you seeing in the world today? When you do see the idols of the world today, how do you feel about them? How do you respond? Are you trying to avoid this big bad world with all its rank idolatry and paganism to retreat to some safe little huddle? That's not how Jesus did it. Are you angry? Really ticked at the world. Wish God would give you a Jonah calling. 40 more days and it's all going to burn. Or are you wanting to be like what Jesus called his disciples, filled with the Spirit, to be these joyful witnesses pointing to the good news of Jesus Christ in the hope of the resurrection? Let's learn the lessons of Mars Hill as we do life this week in our city. Paul didn't rail on them and their rank idolatry. He won a hearing. Paul built bridges by talking to them. He was looking for breadcrumbs. And there's breadcrumbs in every worldview. There are breadcrumbs in all of the stories that people have. There are breadcrumbs in all the world's religions that point ultimately to Jesus. You look for the breadcrumbs and you pick them up. And it might be just a conversation like I had the other day as I was, you know I love skiing. So I did nine days in a row cross-country skiing. That was like so great. And one of them was up in Door County, and I got to a point in the trail late in the afternoon up at Newport State Be Park Beach, and a guy's come up the trail, and I go off to the side, and he says, thank you, and 20 minutes later, we went on our way. We had the greatest little conversation. This man I met who lives in my sister's town in Illinois, he's an architect, and we're talking together, and he talks about I'm a Unitarian, and I know some things about Unitarians. I grew up as a Roman Catholic. He knows I'm a pastor. He's an architect. I said, we got a lot of people who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. One of the things they love is they love learning about the Bible. That's not part for many who grew up in that tradition experience. And he says to me, oh, I would like to learn more about the Bible. Check. Who is this guy? I look him up on the internet, send him a note, and we're talking. And I said, I can't wait for the day that you and I just sit down, have coffee, get to know it. That's a breadcrumb. There are people coming in your life that don't know what you know. So what a great opportunity we have. So God help us as we live for him in this world. And may we never forget that the idols will turn our hearts away from God. And the rest of that story is not good. But Jesus turns our hearts back to God. And the rest of that story is only always good. Let's pray. So God, help us as we live for you. We would shine as lights. We would have a joyful witness. God, hear those who even now are hearing the good news of your love, maybe catching up with the reality that how they're living their life is not in conformity to who you are and what you desire. Lord, hear them, even now as they reach out to you. And I'm just going to pray a prayer. And uh, if you're at that point where you want to just give your life and faith to Christ, then silently pray along with me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve the gift of eternal life that you offer. I'm guilty of rebelling against you. 
ignoring you. And I'm sorry. I ask for your forgiveness. Thanks for sending your son to die in my place that I may be forgiven. Thank you, Jesus, for conquering death to give me new life. Forgive me, change me, that I may live with you, Jesus, as my ruler. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.